I next met with Dr. David McDermott for his take on where we are and where we're headed in renal cell cancer research, and he began by commenting on investigation into the emerging strategy of combination biologics. We're starting to see some interesting data coming on what will hopefully be sort of the next generation of trials that we'll see data on. I think probably the most important one as it relates to practice was the Tarava trial, which was done by a group of French investigators led by Dr. Escudier, which looked at a group of untreated patients with kidney cancer and randomized them to several standard treatments. One was sunitinib alone, the other was bevacizumab and interferon alone, and then compared to a combination that was thought to be quite promising of two approved drugs, one being Toracel and the other being bevacizumab. The early phase one data from that combination suggested this might be a step beyond single agent activity, both with VEGF and TOR inhibitors. Unfortunately, Dr. Escudier's trial did not confirm the original excitement. While it's a small trial, it's a randomized phase two, and it's by no means the last word on the subject, the data did not suggest improved efficacy. In fact, the progression-free survival for the combination arm was about eight months, which was actually lower than the interferon Avastin combination arm, which was a surprise. But more importantly, the toxicity seen in the combination arm was impressive and caused about 40% of patients to have to come off study due to toxicity. So when we're talking about, you know, early data, obviously this needs to be confirmed in larger trials, it becomes a cautionary tale potentially of some of the limits maybe of these agents. While as single agents, they improve survival and certainly help our patients in combination, they may pose challenges, both in toxicity and certainly cost. When you talk about adding these drugs together, we'd have to see significant improvements in effectiveness to justify the cost of two and three drug regimens But there's certainly going to be more data on these combination approaches in the near future. And I guess that this isn't the first time that we've seen maybe not so exciting data coming out of combinations of biologics and renal cell cancer. Absolutely. I think another cautionary tale came from the bevacizumab erlotinib randomized trial. Once again, a small trial suggesting that EGFR inhibition combined with VEGF receptor inhibition would produce an improvement in efficacy. But when we did a randomized trial looking at bevacizumab and placebo versus Tarceva and bevacizumab, essentially the combination added only toxicity, not efficacy. It sort of brings to fore what we all know is the need for properly controlled randomized trials before we push something forward into the community, into our patients on a broader scale. Not everything that looks good early on will be confirmed in large trials, and it's possible you know, we'll need better agents. With A lot of the combination approaches that we've tried with approved drugs have been either hard to get out of phase one or when they've gotten to phase two have not produced the promise that we once thought they might. You know, it's interesting, I guess, as oncologists coming out of thinking about combination chemotherapy being more effective in a lot of situations, there was a lot of hopes that combination biologic treatment would be helpful, sort of made sense. I mean, we've seen it a little bit, like in HER2 breast cancer, mm-hmm. we're starting to see that. Multiple myeloma, you're seeing a couple of biologics used at the same time. But in a lot of other situations, it really hasn't panned out. Do you think that's a viable strategy in general for solid tumors in the future? I think so. I think particularly when it relates to renal cancer, I think we just have to focus on more narrow targets. I think one of the misnomers about when you talk about targeted therapy is that these drugs are narrowly targeted. A lot of them, particularly ones in kidney cancer, have broad targets and often make them hard to combine. 
that's not necessarily going to be as true with some of these second-generation drugs. The hope is some of the second-generation VEGF TKIs will be more narrowly targeted, which will not only allow for greater efficacy as single agents, but hopefully more combinability with other drugs. I think also we're starting to learn now that we've sort of had the proof of principle that VEGF inhibition is so important in kidney cancer, we've started to learn a lot more about what causes resistance to these agents, which all patients will eventually develop and gotten a better clue at what should we be targeting to either prevent resistance or treat resistance once it develops. So we got some ideas and some new targets, for example, FGF, fibroblast growth factor is one potential target that's already in the clinic. Hopefully that will improve effectiveness. Angiopotent 2 is another example of a pro-angiogenic cytokine that now can be targeted. And there are combinations of these angiogenesis inhibitors that are showing early promise in kidney cancer. And hopefully what we learn in kidney cancer can be more broadly applicable to other solid tumors. I mean, it's certainly the best solid tumor to study angiogenesis inhibition in. And hopefully there'll be continued interest in studying these new agents, even though we have four that are FDA approved, we clearly need better ones. So speaking of angiogenesis and VEGF, you were one of the authors on a great new paper in cancer treatment reviews on bevacizumab and advanced renal cancer. Can you talk about some of the biology you went through in this article? So essentially the reason angiogenesis inhibitors are so active in renal cell carcinoma has to do a lot with the biology that drives most renal tumors, which is that most renal cell carcinomas are associated with mutations in the von Hippel-Lindau gene. This gene is a tumor suppressor gene, so when it's not around, when the VHL protein is not around, a transcription factor known as hypoxia-inducible factor, which is one of the few logically named proteins in molecular biology, is allowed to accumulate. So people without VHL protein in their tumors have too much HIF in their tumors, and when you have too much hypoxia-inducible factor, you're always turning on a variety of pro-angiogenic proteins, pro-tumor proteins, things like you're making too much VEGF, you're making too much PDGF, and the shutoff switch is not there because the normal role of VHL is to target HIF for degradation and remove it. If you can't remove it, you're constantly making these proteins and you end up with a broth of sort of pro-tumor stuff that allows tumors to grow much more quickly and to spread. And it's traditionally has made kidney cancer resistant to things like radiation and chemotherapy. It's one of the reasons kidney cancer is so resistant to these strategies. But it develops sort of an Achilles heel in the way that the tumors are so vascular, so enriched with tumor vessels. Now that you can target these vessels, you can actually produce impressive not only responses, but improvements in progression-free survival and ultimately overall survival. So it's sort of the biology that drives the disease that's led to the development of these agents in the disease. But it also creates an interesting problem because these tumors are built to survive. So they're built, once you block one pathway, they're built to upregulate other pathways. So one of the things you see if you look at the blood of patients on, say, for example, sunitinib, is when you block their VEGF receptor, in theory inhibiting angiogenesis in the tumor vessels, what you'll often see is an increased production of VEGF. It's one of the ways probably that tumors become eventually resistant to these agents. So in a way, blocking a VEGF receptor sort of leads to increased VEGF and increased production of other proteins. And targeting that increase has been a goal of these combination approaches. So for example, you would logically think, well, if VEGF 
production is increasing, well, let's add a VEGF binder like Bevacizumab to Sunitinib and see what we can do, see if we can actually improve outcomes. And early on when we did those combinations, the response rates were impressive, you know, 60, 70% response rates in early phase one trials. And we were, you know, convinced this was the way to go. The problem with some of these combinations, though, is the toxicity is often enhanced of these drugs, which is not ideal. And some of the toxicity doesn't always develop right away. It develops several months into treatment. One of the side effects that has sort of stunted the growth of sunitinib and bevacizumab in combination is the development of microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, which is not a trivial complication to deal with. But it's sort of a on, in some ways, it's an on-target effect. There are a lot of blood vessels that are not malignant that need VEGF. So a lot of endothelial cells in the, say, kidney and the heart and the brain are often affected by these drugs. And it's possible that there may be limits to how much you can hit the VEGF pathway, how hard you can hit it. And that trial, while it was a small trial, potentially sort of a canary in the coal mine for our renal cell field is, you know, maybe there are limits. Maybe we have to use other targets along in this process. Maybe we can't hit that pathway so hard in renal cancer. Or maybe you have to be selective in who you do it in. Absolutely. And we're working on both ends of that, you know, trying to figure out which patients are these safe to give, which patients should not be given these agents. And when you look at the trials that were published, one of the things you see is they were fairly selective to patients who skewed younger than the average patient. They often didn't have a lot of patients with prior, you know, cardiac comorbidities, for example, recent bleeding. But that's not the population of people we see in practice. It's often a broader population, patients with a history of things like heart attack and CHF. And it becomes important to try to figure out, you know, who's safe to give these drugs in. And these people need to be counseled that while for the vast majority of patients, these drugs are quite safe, there are occasions where the side effects can be impressive and dramatic and sometimes life-changing. They need to know about them ahead of time, even though they sort of are only in the small percentages in the actual trial publications. But getting to your larger question, which is sort of the role of bevacizumab in kidney cancer, it's an interesting story because the first paper, that, at least that I was aware of, that suggested that kidney cancer could be targeted in this way, targeting the blood vessels, not the tumor itself, was an article published by Jim Yang several years ago in his group from the NCI, where they looked at patients, most of whom had failed IL-2, and randomized them to a low dose of bevacizumab, a high dose of bevacizumab, or placebo, and showed pretty clearly that the group getting the higher dose actually had an improved outcome when it relates to progression-free survival and response. It was sort of proof of principle in some ways and sort of the first proof of principle. But Bev alone, for reasons you know that are complicated, didn't get developed as a single agent in kidney cancer. It got developed as an add-on to interferon, which at the time, it seems like decades ago, but it was really only five years ago where interferon alone was the standard of care, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So the trials that have now established bevacizumab as having a role in kidney cancer are now in combination with bevacizumab interferon. And the question that arises is, can you get the same efficacy without the interferon? And that remains an unanswered question. There's some suggestion that interferon does add something because the response rates in the combination trials are higher than you might expect with either drug alone. So maybe interferon is adding something. Maybe it's an anti-angiogenic effect that many people speculate interferon has that's adding to what Avastin can do. But it remains to be determined. The problem for practice is when you combine interferon with BEV, you add a certain amount of 
inconvenience, both in toxicity and dosing administration, the whole thing. Patients are really not that excited about giving themselves interferon. So you create a sort of a complicated question is, you know, can you get the same bang for your buck without interferon? I would certainly urge that those studies be done, but they haven't been done yet. So as of now, we talk about the drugs in combination, but in my personal practice, I've seen good outcomes with bevalone. We, as you mentioned before, we did do the bevacizumab erlotinib combination trial. So we've had a fair amount of experience with bevacizumab alone. And what many patients will experience with that drug alone is much less toxicity than you would see in combination, unless they have one of the potentially damaging side effects that are associated with bevacizumab, like perforation or bleeding. They often don't realize they're actually getting anything because the side effects of bevalone most Community oncologists may not have a lot of experience with bevacizumab alone, but as a single drug, it's actually pretty tolerable. Well, I'm sure, I mean, they know that from, you know, having people on maintenance, you know, after they've stopped chemo and other tumors. Yeah, no, I think it's really a perplexing problem. I mean, if you were to compare, you just described a pretty benign side effects profile with some efficacy. You compare that to what a patient goes through who gets, for example, sunitinib. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a pretty big difference. No, absolutely. And there are reasons why these trials don't get done. But a trial that compared a VEGF TKI head-to-head with BEV alone or just a VEGF binder alone, doesn't have to be BEV, would be very, I think, helpful for the field. Because now we have all these drugs, but we don't have a lot of data on their relative pluses and minuses. And we're probably exposing certain patients to toxicities that they don't need to deal with, both by treating them too soon or by treating them aggressively with agents that do have while maybe not dangerous side effects, have quite a long list of annoying side effects. And it's amazing how far we've come in just five years. It used to be, it was clear that these drugs were so much better than interferon, both from an efficacy point of view, which is absolutely true, but also from a tolerability point of view. But now when you're comparing them to each other or comparing them to doing nothing and just watching, it becomes much harder for us, even those of us who see kidney cancer all the time, to decide what's the best single approach, what's the best first thing to do, what's the best thing to do second line. Those are obvious questions, but we don't have clear answers for patients or their physicians right now. That being said, kidney cancer is so driven by VEGF. Of all the tumors, the greatest impact of VEGF inhibition is probably seen there, not only in tumor shrinkage, but in improvements in overall survival that are meaningful, meaning we're seeing 40, 50% increases in survival. Those are big differences. These are not some of the small differences you might see with targeted agents, say in lung cancer or something else. Where are we in terms of trying to identify predictors or response. When I was talking to this glioma investigator, I thought I remember that Bob Mozer had presented some data a couple years ago about looking at some kind of measure of HIF. Are there any tissue predictors out there right now that look promising in terms of either, you know, VEGF antibody like bevacizumab or TKI? Well, there's a lot that's been explored, both tissue and blood. There's still not one clear factor that predicts for either benefit or can predict for development of resistance. So there's many angiogenic cytokines that have been looked at. They've looked at not only VEGF levels, but VEGF receptor levels. They've looked at other cytokines like interleukin-8 and FGF. There are other things that are being looked at in the serum of these patients, both prior to treatment and during therapy to help clarify who should get these drugs and who shouldn't. There's also looking at tumor features as well. But for the most part, when you're talking about agents that at least in kidney cancer have activity in about 70% of patients, 
it's not clear to me that spending a lot of time looking at predictors of benefit is going to be as useful, particularly since these drugs, A, work for most patients, and B, are relatively tolerable. They're going to be tried in most patients, and isolating that 20% that don't benefit at all you probably could spend your energy more usefully in other places. So, for example, looking at what happens at resistance, I think, is much more important. It's more difficult, but much more important. So that involves getting not only blood on these patients at time of resistance, but looking at their tumor at time of resistance, actually doing tumor biopsies, looking at what genes are being expressed compared to how they might have been expressed prior to treatment. That's something we're actively doing in a variety of trials. That is not easy, particularly in kidney cancer, where access to tumor is often difficult given where these tumors tend to metastasize. Another thing we're also trying to do is looking at radiologic predictors of benefit and resistance, which I think in some ways would be preferable because it's less invasive. So things like dynamic contrast MRI and arterial spin-labeled MRI, things that look at the blood vessels of these tumors are being looked at both prior to treatment and at the time of resistance, and they may give us a sense of you know, who's getting benefit and who's not. They may be more predictive in many ways than CT scan because they're actually looking at the target. They're looking at the blood vessels. You often don't see major changes when you look at CT scans of these patients on these drugs. We try to convince folks that they're getting a benefit, but it's often the tumor looks the same size but may have a cystic appearance in the center, for example. So these new MRI techniques are being employed more in clinical trials and hopefully will show us a way around predicting who should get them and then who should get alternative treatment as these scans change over time. I have a new question I've been asking people to just try to get a global understanding how they see things. Let me ask, I'll try it with you. Overall, if a patient who's about to start sunitinib, you know, say otherwise healthy person for metastatic renal cell cancer says to you, what's the chance I'm going to cruise through this? No problem, hardly at all. What's the chance I'm going to get through it, but I'm going to have some problems, but, you know, we'll be able to adjust to it. And what's the chance that this is going to be a bad experience? What kind of numbers would you give them? Right. I tell people straight off that there are about 30 or 40% of patients who go on these drugs will require either dose reduction or significant holding and treatment because of side effects. I think you can limit that with education. You can limit that by telling people what to expect. You can limit that by telling them once they experience these side effects to get on the phone and call us so we can start addressing these side effects right away. I think the folks who get in trouble are the ones who don't call who keep taking the drug despite severe fatigue or severe diarrhea. I think those things can be managed. And I think also you can hold treatment, reduce the dose, and then later, two, three, four months later, you can often get away with doses that you could never get away with in the first cycle. And in fact, and this will come up in one of the cases that I mentioned, is there are probably some patients who you're better off starting at a lower dose and gradually escalating the dose, much in the way that thalidomide is dosed or was dosed, in that you find that every patient has their individual MTD, and you find that in a gradual way. There's often no rush to start at the full dose unless the patient has full-blown symptoms. So I would say about 30 or 40% of patients run into trouble, but you can modify that with education and considering a dose escalation schedule. Like I mentioned, there's probably only about 10 or 20% of patients who experience no side effects. I mean, when you look at the data, you don't see much grade 3 and 4 toxicity with these drugs, but just imagine what grade 2 diarrhea is like for a typical patient. I mean, that's up to six bowel movements a day, every day. I mean, that's just a real drag. And measuring fatigue, I mean, who knows how to really calculate that? I mean, I think think in general, 
these drugs for reasons that have sort of hurt us. We sort of underestimated the side effects. Not that they can't be managed, not that they can't be dealt with, but they should be dealt with in an upfront way. And we should consider some of these dosing adjustment schemes to keep people on drug longer because it's only by keeping them on drug do they actually have any real benefit. They're not eradicating the tumor. They're just keeping it from causing problems for a period of time. And the longer we can extend that, the better. As long as you're talking about dose adjustments, one option that seems like not too many people use, but I'm curious what you think about it, is to go to a two-week on, one-week off schedule. What do you think about that? Well, once again, that's more art than science, but it makes a lot of sense because in something we've employed in our patients, it's not something that's been formally studied in any major way. But what happens to patients, particularly on sunitinib, which is that schedule, is they run into more problems weeks three and four. And if you hold them on week three for a week, as you suggest, you can avoid the severity of toxicity. And I often find some patients need a two-week break after two weeks of treatment. And the goal should be the most amount of drug that that individual patient can tolerate for the longest amount of time. And the more you stick to the rigid schedule, the more likely you're going to get patients to say, you know, I give, you know, I can't continue this. And you haven't really done them any favors because they're often moving on to agents that are no more effective and still have some of that similar toxicity profiles. So have you used pizopinib to any extent, either on or off study? And what has been your experience? Yes, we certainly have. And most people's experience is limited at this point, particularly in the U.S., because a lot of the enrollment was outside of the U.S. for some of their pivotal trials. But I do think the drug holds some promise. We'll obviously need to wait for the head-to-head comparison, but I think in some ways there are some side effects that seem less common, you know, things like potentially fatigue and hand-foot syndrome in the patients that I've treated. But there are other side effects that are probably more of an issue. You need to watch people's liver function tests a little more closely. That seems to be an issue. That's something that's manageable, but it needs to be looked for. So I think it's a drug that holds promise and clearly has a role, but separating it from the others is hard to do right now. We need to wait for more data. Okay, why don't we talk about your cases, beginning with your 56-year-old man. Okay. So this gentleman, a 56-year-old who hadn't had any past medical history, presented to his primary care physician several years ago with a complaint of right shoulder pain. His primary care did an x-ray, which showed that his shoulder was fine, but he had what looked like a lung metastasis. He was sent for a CT, which showed two masses in his right kidney, right adrenal med, and bilateral lung mets. He underwent a debulking nephrectomy two months later in March of 2007, and then was referred to us. At the time, we were enrolling on a trial called the IL-2 Select trial, which was just presented at ASCO this year, and he received two courses of high-dose IL-2. Between course one and two of treatment, he actually developed a pathologic fracture of his left femur, so he received his second course of IL-2 while he was completely bedridden from this surgery. But within a couple of months of treatment, he was already having a major response, which has remained durable for the last three years. So what an experience. How did you present this to him? What kind of numbers do you give to people when they're considering high-dose IL-2? And how do you go about selecting who to present it to? Right. We're pretty blunt when we talk about high-dose IL-2. It certainly has its drawbacks, one of which is it doesn't work for most patients. Probably 70 or 80% of patients who receive high-dose IL-2 don't get much of a benefit except for significant toxicity, which is obviously the second drawback drug is one of the more toxic agents in all of oncology. 
and it's obviously an expensive drug as well. So we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out who should get this treatment and who shouldn't. I think that's worthwhile in this case, in the sense that this drug can produce durable remissions, which is obviously the patient's goal when they develop metastatic cancer of any type, but only in a select group of patients. So we conducted a trial trying to confirm our retrospective data, which suggested certain clinical features, certain tumor features would predict for benefit for HIDELSIL2. And while this patient's benefit, while early, three years later, is tremendous, it created a problem for us in confirming our retrospective data, meaning this is not the person you would think of when you would think of someone who's likely to respond to IL-2. This is a patient with rapidly growing disease, uh, primary tumor in place, a poor risk, Memorial Sloan Kettering score. What I didn't mention in my presentation with this tumor was a very aggressive, a very high-grade clear cell renal tumor. Our retrospective analyses had suggested that this type of tumor would not respond to HIDOSIL-2 as it had aggressive clear cell features plus lower CA9 staining which is carbonic, stands for carbonic anhydrase 9. So a lot of work went into trying to confirm there was a certain group of patients who could respond to treatment, and this was not it. It turns out, when we presented the data at ASCO a couple of weeks ago, it, this patient was not alone. In fact, our response rate in what we thought was a poor-risk group of patients was just as good, if not better, than in the folks we thought were a good-risk population. So we have a lot more work to do in the field of immunotherapy for kidney cancer. The response rate is still, in some ways, high even in the era of these targeted approaches, the response rate for that trial that he was on was 28%, which is pretty good. And that response rate improvement is not because IL-2 is better. It's because we're getting better at selecting patients. But coming up with tumor markers that predict for benefit, we still haven't been able to confirm that work. And we need to because we want to, A, limit the folks who get this toxic treatment to those most likely to benefit on the one hand. On the other hand, we want to ensure that the patients who can be cured of their kidney cancer hear about interleukin-2 or other forms of immune therapy, and they're not likely to hear about it as often unless we can come up with a pretreatment test that can help docs sort of figure out who should be referred for HIDOSIL-2 and who should move on to targeted agents. And that becomes even more important because one of the exciting things about ASCO this year, probably the most exciting thing for me, for someone who believes in immune therapy for cancer, is the development of more targeted forms of immune therapy, in particular ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 antibody. That drug has shown improvements in the ability to improve survival in melanoma. It's also active in renal cancer. There is a series of other targeted agents in the pipeline that may also have activity in renal cancer. I want to see these drugs developed for patients with kidney cancer because hopefully what they'll offer is the durable benefit we see with IL-2 with less toxicity, making them more applicable to practitioners and patients who are not living near IL-2 centers. Yeah, I want to ask you about the abdominal melanoma work that you co-authored, but so are you saying that objective responses have been seen to ipilimumab alone in renal cell? Yes. Wow, interesting. Anyhow, we'll get to that in a second, but just to get back to your paper from ASCO, I don't know, am I correct in saying that sort of up until this work, the running figure when people said, what's the chance of maybe, I don't know whether it was response or prolonged response was more like 10%? If you look at the package insert for IL-2, the major response rate, so the chance of a CR or a PR, 
was 14% at the time the drug was approved, and that was 1992. And half of those patients were durable. So the number you hear is like 7% of patients had durable benefit. In our trial, that response rate was 28%, which is significantly higher, which was actually the primary endpoint of the study. So in some ways, you could argue the study was a positive trial and that we were treating patients with a higher response rate, likely through selection. But that wasn't the main goal of the trial. The main goal of the trial was to confirm the fact that we thought that there were certain types of clear cell kidney cancer based on histology, and there were certain types of clear cell cancer based on carbonic anhydrase 9 expression that were more likely to benefit based on retrospective data done from the group at UCLA and our group at Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Center. We were unable to confirm that result. It doesn't mean it's not real. It just means we weren't able to prove it. The carbonic anhydrase thing? Correct. In a prospective way. We have other targets and we have other clues and we have lots of good tissue to look at from this trial. So we hope that we'll be able to come up with a marker from this prospective group of patients. And we think we can just because we don't believe that the response in IL-2 is better because the drug is better. It's no better or worse than it was 20 years ago. It's still the same drug. It's, we're probably getting better at choosing who we pick. And one of the things you notice if you look at the patients who were enrolled in this trial is there were probably fewer patients with non-clear cell cancer enrolled in this trial, even though they were eligible. There are also probably patients who had, many more patients had undergone debulking nephrectomy prior to receiving IL-2, and we have a general sense that those patients respond to immunotherapy better. So it may be those changes in our clinical practice which improved the outcome and can be mimicked for other patients around the country to allow IL-2 to remain an option for some patients. But we wanted to take it a step further to come up with a tissue-based marker, and we still have work to do on that. So you have 35 out of 120 people with responses. What fraction overall were, let's say, more than two years? At the moment, two-thirds of the patients are over two years. There are, right now, of the major responders, half of those responders are durable at this point. But we'll have to see our sort of determination of durable responses, three-year progression-free survival, and not all the patients have reached three years yet. But in general, you see for most IL-2 trials, about half the responders are durable responders, which is the only real reason to give IL-2 is to produce the durable benefit. Let's talk about the case you brought here today, the 44-year-old woman. So... A young woman works as a construction contractor, has three children presented with hematuria. Her primary care center for abdominal ultrasound, which revealed a 12-centimeter right renal mass. She underwent a radical nephrectomy, which confirmed that she had stage 3 renal cancer and a rare chromophobe subtype of renal cell carcinoma. She was referred to us because she was concerned about a risk of recurrence, and she entered the ECOG trial 2805. We don't know what she was randomized to, but that trial randomizes patients to Sutent, Nexavar, or placebo. But after three treatment cycles and dose reduction, she had to come off study due to her intolerance of therapy, in part because she was unable to work due to her treatment side effects and couldn't afford to lose her job. What specific problems did she have and when did they start? They started early within the first cycle. She had a sort of a constellation of symptoms including hand-foot syndrome, particularly affecting her hands. She also had a significant fatigue, and she called it depressed mood with headaches. She had some GI toxicity, but the treatment-limiting toxicities were mainly the fatigue and the hand-foot pain. And how did those symptoms vary with the cycle? Did she get through the second and third cycle that you could figure that out? 
Right. They came on early, and they were persistent despite dose reductions. It's a little hard to know because the way that trial is designed, patients take either sunitinib and placebo or nexavar and placebo or both, either placebo and placebo. So it's hard to know. We're blinded to what they're on. So it's hard to know the pattern as it relates to drug dosing. It seemed a fairly, in her case, it seemed a fairly consistent pattern, which you could suggest was due to the drug that was being received daily, but we don't really know in her case. I think that what this case brings up, though, is several things. One is the question of, you know, are these agents which improve survival in metastatic disease going to improve outcomes in stage 2 and 3 renal cancer? The short answer is I hope so, but we'll have to wait to see the results of this and several other adjuvant trials to know that's the case. So they certainly should not be offered to patients in the adjuvant setting until we see those results. You could certainly make an argument that they might delay recurrence. But to me, it's harder to make the argument that they're actually going to decrease mortality for several reasons. One, based on their method of action, they target tumor blood vessels. It's not clear to me that microscopic tumor, which is really the problem for patients with stage 2 and 3 disease, actually will have their tumor burden affected by angiogenesis inhibitor in theory. Microscopic tumor deposits don't need as rich a blood supply to survive. And these drugs are not being given forever. In the case of the 2805 trial, they're only being given for a year. So you can imagine them delaying recurrence, which you could argue is a benefit. But when you stop the drug, will the tumor grow or not? I think that's sort of the, the ultimate question with this trial. I think the other issue with this trial, which is important, is the side effects. You're taking patients without metastatic disease whose motivation to continue on drug is probably less than those who have active disease, and you're giving them a year of treatment, which is in many ways longer than you might treat someone in the metastatic setting because the drugs often don't work for that long. And the questions are, you know, can they tolerate these drugs and will you run into more significant side effects? So one of the interesting sub-studies as part of the ECOG trial is looking at cardiac toxicity and the patients are getting, you know, regular screening for their hearts as part of this trial. So those results will be interesting. But also importantly, can you accrue to a trial in the adjuvant setting given these drugs' side effects? And the short answer is we accrued this trial very quickly and it met its accrual goal a year ahead of time. But the investigators had to actually increase the accrual goal for the trial because a much higher percentage of patients were dropping off the trial due to side effects. And one of the interesting things that was done on this trial to actually increase patients' ability to tolerate therapy and stay on drug is they adopted an approach, which we mentioned earlier, which is gradually escalating the dose of these agents in the first cycle or so of treatment, as opposed to starting at the full dose, gradually increasing dose until you get the patient on full dose. And this, at least in the early stages, seems to have improved our ability to keep patients adherent to the regimen. So her experience, which was before this change in the protocol, is not atypical for people on this trial, is that she wanted to be on it. She had a lot of motivation to be on it, but she couldn't lose her job to stay on it. And she essentially came off the trial. If she had had clear-cut metastatic disease, do you think she would have, and you would have persisted? Yes, I think she would have. With something, I mean, you could argue that that wouldn't have been the first choice, but the problem with her subtype, and this is obviously a rare case, is there's not much to offer these patients because typically non-clear cell tumors don't respond to immune therapy, and no one really knows how to treat a chromophobe subtype. But that being said, I think in general, patients who have established metastatic disease are more motivated to try to stay on or to try other things. But her attitude was, you know, I can't continue to meet all the roles that I have to meet both at home and at work and stay on the treatment. And hopefully it won't make a difference for her. 
you know, and it was hard for me because there's not a lot of data suggesting this is a good idea in her type of renal cancer. It was hard for me to push her too hard to stay on treatment. Well, plus, you know, theoretically and hopefully she could be cured. Yes, absolutely. I don't know whether this actually came up or she even asked you, but if she had or did, what would you have said her risk of recurrence was? Well, it's a good question. Less is known about her specific subtype as it relates to typical kidney cancer, but her risk of recurrence was probably in the 40 to 50% range, which is non-trivial, you know, given her age and all the rest. So the one thing that we did emphasize to her and we're still doing is we're doing close observation. So hopefully if she has a recurrence that's local, we'll be able to resect it. And as you point out, there's a, still a reasonable chance that she'll never recur. So were you sitting there thinking she probably is on serafinib? <laughs> yes, is the short answer to that, because her side effects didn't seem to wax and wane. Well, also, what about the hand foot, or do you see a lot of that with sunitinib? You can see it with sunitinib, too, and I think one of the interesting things about hand foot is, it, and this may be an anecdote, but we tend to see it more in patients who are particularly active in one way or the other. So folks who are big runners tend to get more foot problems. Patients who are using their hands for their jobs may have more issues with their hands. And it's sort of a, in some ways, a diabolical side effect in that it prevents some patients from doing the things that they like to do or need to do the most. So we, uh, as I mentioned, I think before, we recently conducted a poll of 150 oncologists and 12 investigators in renal cell cancer. And one of the questions we asked everybody is, do you consider the use of therapy outside or protocol settings, specifically the TKI or sunitinib, what do you think we got back in his results from the investigators and the docs in practice? Well, I would hope from the investigators you got an answer that said they shouldn't do it. 12 of 12, right? Okay. In community practice, you know, they may be less aware of our experience with ECOG 2805. And I would imagine that some of them are willing to try it in part because they're faced with a patient who's, you know, petrified, that they have a real risk of recurrence and they want to do something. But I would still think it was a little bit lower, maybe 20 or 30% of folks in that setting might be willing to consider it. 21%. So, you know, kind of, that's good. I'm glad what we got sort of jives with what you got. I think it was sobering, too, to think about, you know, I mean, I guess it's possible that this could actually be harmful. Absolutely. And I think, particularly when you talk about the duration of therapy, these drugs are being given longer, at least in the adjuvant trials, than they probably were to the typical patient in the metastatic setting. And as we point out, even patients with fairly advanced renal cancer have a pretty decent chance of being cured with surgery. It's still by far the best treatment for most patients. So, and those mechanism of action questions, you know, will you, in the end, to me, an adjuvant therapy is, you know, nice if it delays recurrence, but it really has to decrease mortality, in my mind, to be worth it. And it'll be interesting to see whether these trials show that. And to me, that'll be the most important endpoint. I mean, I can imagine a patient like this coming into a doc in practice, you know, 44-year-old mother or three, and, you you know, who particularly somebody who maybe has gotten educated about it and, you know, wants it, and it's not easy. You say that's the most important thing about the trial, but I was thinking about that trial when I saw the presentation by Brian Reaney at ASCO, because, you know, we've been talking about RT-PCR and genomic assays, obviously the oncotype and breast cancer for, you know, almost a decade colon cancer now, we're starting to see some data in that. And I was amazed and happy to see the beginnings of some data. Maybe you can comment on what he presented when I was sitting there thinking, I'd love to see that assay get done on this study. You know, or once they're done, go back and do something like that. Well, the tissue is being saved. So some of that stuff can be done in the patients we have it on. 
But I think much like our retrospective look at immunotherapy and the impact of tumor and carbonic anhydrase 9, in the end, it sort of brings up, you need to do this prospectively to be more sure. And I think Brian's group is excellent at coming up with new ideas and new targets and things we need to focus on. But I'm sure he would say, you know, we need to be doing this prospectively. We need to standardize our way of collecting tumor on these patients and freezing it so it can be used more broadly. And we're still a long way from that in renal cancer, in part because in the metastatic setting, we often don't see patients until several years after they're diagnosed. Their tumor is not frozen away. Oftentimes, it's not practical to do that. It's often in paraffin. And what we can do with it is more limited. And it's harder to look at the metastatic disease and looking at the genetic changes, comparing the met to the primary. All of that stuff is important. It's harder to do in renal cancer because of some of those issues. The thing I found so fascinating about that presentation is when they came out with the oncotype in breast cancer and they showed the kind of genes they were looking at, their proliferation genes, but there was also HER2 and ER kind of made sense. The colon, I'm not so sure I understand that one, but the thing that I thought was fascinating about the renal thing was all the angiogenesis genes that were so predictive. Right. That is not too surprising given the biology, which is if you're not making VHL protein, you're making too much of HIF, and HIF drives hypoxia-inducible factor. It's a transcription factor that drives the production of VEGF, PDGF, TGF, you know, a variety of different proteins that are all in that same chain. The question is, can that then help you select for patients? You know, I hope it certainly can, but since that biology is so central to so many patients, it may not have as much selection value, but hopefully it'll add to new targets. It'll give us a sense of new things that are important drivers of kidney cancer that we might be able to target clinically. 